All right. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. I'm very excited to have five environmental activists here to celebrate Earth Day. Today we have Shailen Black, a member of Sankofa Community Farm located at Bartram's Garden. We have Steve Greenspan and Russell Hicks, who are both leading members of the Climate Justice and Jobs Team of Power, which stands for Pennsylvania's or Pennsylvanians Organized to Witness, Empower, and Rebuild. And we also have Russell Zerbo, an advocate for the Clean Air Council. And last but not least, our amazing moderator of the discussion, Marie Nahikian, who's the host of The Usable Past, a podcast where activists share their stories of past and present organizing for better housing, food, banks, jobs, environmental and social justice. So Marie worked with the US Housing and Urban Development under President Obama and has participated in building 5,000 affordable homes in Washington, DC, Philadelphia, and New York. She's also been a neighborhood civil rights, housing, and labor organizer, a community journalist, and in 1977 was the founder of WPFWFM Pacifica Radio in Washington, DC. So now I'll turn things over to our host. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, this is such uh, an amazing group of people to um, be talking with, but I think we're going to talk more present than past, but I wanted to share, um, and I'm going to share my screen right now, I wanted to share with everybody uh, a little bit of history 51 years ago, um, and I'll see if I can do this correctly, which I don't always do, but um, I'll turn this into a slideshow. There was um, there was a beginning, and that was that in February of 1970, there was a college newspaper editors conference that brought together three or four hundred of um, college newspaper editors from across the country. Uh, it was an event that I organized as uh, a member of the U.S. Student Press Association. And what's amazing is that um, two and a half months later was Earth Day. But the College Editors Conference included, oh, Liberation News Service, who, who dumped sludge oil over the face of Robert O. Anderson, from Atlantic Richfield Oil and the Hog Farmers Commune who were provided the security. Um, the um, Chicago seven and eight minus Bobby Seale who was still in jail. Secretary of Interior Walter Hickel who was confronted by Hopi Indians and said, who told him, we just want you to know we are dying. Margaret Mead, um, was the keynote speaker. So that's it's a little bit of history of how I came to be introduced to Earth Day, which happened two and a half months later. And now we're in 1970 to 2021. So 51 years later, um, we're gonna talk a little bit about what happened and what has happened and what needed to happen. Um, I'm gonna, I, 
I hope that um, one of our speakers, uh, Shailen Black, who is with us, is a master gardener, and she's with the Sankofa, um, the Sankofa Garden at Bartram's. And I wanted to share that from my very first visit with um, and meeting Shailen and my visit with the Sankofa Mark Garden, um, I saw this group of young people who came together and they plant, they clean, they weed, and they harvest this garden. But I knew there was something very different um, about the way these group of young people come together. And Shailen, can you share how you and your fellow gardeners start your work day every day? Shailen's still on mute. Um, We'll ask her to unmute and we'll come back to that. Um, the reason I, I share that is because the land that we live on has energy. It's alive and it has a soul. So I'd like to start out the afternoon by asking the great spirits to bless all of us who are here. And may we learn to heal Mother Earth. Many persons on Mother Earth exist and have experienced trauma, grief, and loss, some of which we have lived with over the past year, some many more years than that. So we ask that all souls have a safe place away from the painful pain of trauma and sad memories, and that we ask for our, the land to be blessed and we bless the people who have taken care of it historically. Um, and that's just the best way I know to start out a discussion in 2021. Um, you've got a brief introduction to who some of our panelists are. And I'd like, I'd like to just start, um, we have two Russells, so we have, to, we have to go Russell Hicks and Russell Zerbo. But I wanted to ask um, Russell Zerbo just to start off have have you ever had like an environmental moment, one of those moments that you recall over and over and over again? Because you're an activist, you live environmental issues every day. I mean, do you have a moment like that that you can think of? Like a good moment, you mean? Like a positive or moment? A, a moment that lives with you every day. I mean, for me, oh, it was... sure. Oh, oh, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I mean, the... I'll just share briefly. For me, it was it was the Hopi Indians when they confronted Walter Hickel and said, we want you to know you're, we're dying. And that's something that I remember day after day of what what all this is about. But how yes. about you, Russell? Well, I have a lot of um, negative experiences uh, because so much of my job um, and my life in the last nine years have been, um, it'll be August 1st, 2012 was my start date uh, at Clean Air Council. So that'll be nine years um, this coming August 1st. And uh, the bulk of that job has been participating in public comment periods, receiving complaints from people, you know, nobody calls me because they're having a great day. 
Um, I exclusively <laughs> get phone calls from people who are furious about some sort of environmental issue that is either coming down the pike or happening right now. And, um, and then in certain situations, I will be the person that, you know, sees something being proposed and then has to take it to that community and go, you, do you know these people are proposing to burn chemical waste in your town? And there's, you know, a process for engaging with that. And um, probably one of my, and this is even, um, uh, this was one of my big victories, but it also is the actual answer to your question. So I'm not just uh, inserting it in there. Um, we, this company, Elcon, was trying to build a very large hazardous waste boiler in Southern Bucks County at the old US Steel complex, literally on the Delaware River, 20 miles north of Philadelphia. And they were proposing, you know, just to truck in lead and cadmium waste to be boiled along the Delaware. And it was just an absurd proposal. Um, and when it was first being proposed, it was, you know, a six year campaign. They, during COVID, the company finally pulled a proposal. Um, but, you know, six, seven years ago, they were first in the community and talking about how great the facility would be and how all the benefits that would occur locally. Um, and I remember being in the room with uh, the gentleman who was proposing the project. It was like their lead chemist. And um, this guy was saying, well, you know, if you use nail polish, if you shampoo your hair, if you do any of these things, then you're responsible for this waste and you have to accept this chemical boiler coming into your community because you use shampoo. Um, and then, you know, first of all, there's no lead and cadmium involved in shampoo. So I don't know where that's coming from. But the big thing is the person didn't realize that, you know, in Southern Bucks County, they're already getting the waste from the Mid-Atlantic. New York City, I mean, there's a part of Southern Bucks County that has one of the larger <laughs> aggregations of landfills in the country. Um, so the person just had no idea that this community was already suffering an immense burden. Um, so it was a really, it was a really eye-opening thing. And I was kind of, my wheels started turning and it's like, you really, you really didn't do your research. Um, and ever since then, you know, companies are always making that pitch. You know, if you do this, then you have to deal with this. Um, but no one ever looks around at what the community is already dealing with. Um, and unfortunately, you know, in Eastern Pennsylvania, Southeast PA, we just bear the brunt of, you know, a big chunk of the nation's waste. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that a lot more because that's, uh, I think it was, and I'll go to you, Steve, next about, do you have an environmental moment? Because I think you said yesterday that, um, in Pennsylvania, we breathe pollution from everyone else. And that is a real eye-opener for any of us who live in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, but what, what was your environmental moment, if you have one? Uh, for me? Yeah. Yeah, so... So in many ways, I'm a, I'm a latecomer to activism. Um, I was um, always supportive, but I think what really changed my attitude were two things. One, getting involved with power 
um, in, in their climate justice and jobs team. And I did so because um, um, a number of, of things, um, including my work, um, convinced me that the two great crises of our time were social justice, racial justice, and the environment, the climate change. Um, and the second thing, the, really, the thing that really had a strong impact on me, even though I wasn't um, you know, central to its leadership, was Philly Thrive and what happened with the refinery. When the refinery exploded, it was a wake-up call. Getting involved with them, um, even you know, just being a, a body, being a participant at the rallies, um, had a huge impact on me because one, I saw the power of organizing um, and I met people living in those communities. I, I worked with them or, or at least talked to them um, greatly. And I, it made a huge impact um, so that I saw that organizing can be successful. Um, the, for many reasons, the plant did not reopen, but one of them, one major reason was the activities of Philly Thrive. And so that convinced me that I had to be part of this work and that I needed to learn a lot more. That's a really important moment, I think, for a lot of people in Philadelphia. But um, what year was, was it that the, that the explosion happened? So that was how many years ago? Two years, yeah. Two years, okay. Welcome, Shailen. We're so glad to have you with us. Um, hi. I'm gonna, hi, I'm going to come back. That's okay. Hmm? I'm going to come back to you because I want to zip over here to Russell Hicks. Okay. And uh, ask Russell, Russell, do you have an environmental moment that, that kind of made you on a path that you've been on to not only be an activist, but an entrepreneur? Yes, totally. There are many moments of intersection and uh, inspiration and uh, inspection. Um, I know 2016, uh, I was co-chair with the Social Venture Institute conference on that the Sustainable Business Network um, used to do annually and bringing people around the nation. And I remember hearing Van Jones speak about the green economy and how it could deliver the beloved community that had always been near and dear to my heart and mind uh, via Dr. Martin Luther King's dream and realizing that for all people um, and really doing research and getting involved um, since 2006 in climate justice. I wanna say happy Earth Day to everyone uh, as we honor Mother Earth. Uh, if we think about the Earth as a mother uh, and it's close to Mother's Day, but it's, uh, it nurtures us naturally with all the uh, rich nutrients we need to live, the sun, the wind, the water, uh, and, but due to industry and, and man, um, you know, we have to clean it up. And so I want to uh, make sure that we acknowledge Mother Earth on uh, the history, like you said, we first um, to start with the land and honoring the land and the life that comes from it uh, since the beginning of time. And so making sure that we all are aware and know that we have to take care of Mother Earth 
as it nurtures us, nurtures life for all people. And so I'm glad to uh, always um, to celebrate Earth Day 365. And uh, in the last three years, in addition to the work uh, with Steve and being co-chair with the Climate Justice and Jobs Team with Power, uh, it's, it's really educating local communities about what the green economy means to black and brown communities and diverse communities all around the city, uh, state, country, and world to be on one accord, uh, one uh, energy wavelength to sustain life on earth. So uh, there's many moments and hopefully there'll be many moments to come um, in many years on earth <laughs> for all of us. Absolutely. So I'm going to come back to you, Russell, in just a minute because uh, I want to I want to have a, a solar a solar discussion with you. But I want to welcome Shailene. Shailene, we had kind of introduced you a little bit earlier, so I'm glad you're here. And I said that when uh, when I first met you and when I first visited the Sankofa farm, I knew there was something different. There were gardeners there, and there were um, a lot of exciting things that happened, but there was something very different about the way the Sankofa farm at Bartram's Garden starts its day. And I was wondering if you would share with us how it is that you and your fellow gardeners start your work day when you're there to work on the farm. Okay, so um, on the normal day for me and like my workers and everything there, um, we all get there on the same time around 3.30. That's when our workday starts. And we don't start directly by going in and working. Like we all welcome each other into a space and we talk about like how our day was. We have our little check-ins to make sure like everything's like, well, we're bringing the energy towards the environment in our space. Um, even if we weren't necessarily having a bad day, like the, the energy that we put in there um, kind of brings us up spiritually and mentally enough to be able to have a decent work day. Um, and then like after we check in, we do our little, um, like we choose our chores and then we like greet the land that we work to, like where the um, crops and everything are, where our, our plants are. We welcome ourselves into that space next once we start to work there. Um, and then, yeah, so it's more like a spiritual connection we have with our, like the land. Um, so we put it in um, our spiritual connection, emotional connection with the plants and everything that we're growing in there. And then, yeah, it really is very beneficial to, I feel like the environment and to us as well. But... Thank you. Because You're I think that's a, that's a very special connection that somehow in our busy lives of being activists that we often forget. Um, so I think, I think everybody for trying to, to remember that. And as we move forward with talking about where we are today, I mean, I want to go back to, to Russell Hicks for a minute, because I know you've been involved with um, solar power. And I wanted to share with everyone that in 1985, 84, 85, there was a row or there is a row of solar townhouses that were built for black and brown people who live there and own them in the 1500 block of West Thompson Street. Because I was involved with a nonprofit uh, community development group called National Temple that built 
that row of solar townhouses, uh, a local Philadelphia architect named Robert Campbell was the designer. The houses are still there. The solar still works. Um, I don't know how many of the old um, original homeowners are still there, but it is amazing. And one of the footnotes to the story is one of the biggest struggles was getting HUD's FHA to agree to give mortgages to those families because they were like, solar, what? You know, you must be crazy. Um, their electric bills for a long time were tracked and, and the data was collected and they generally ran um, not $1,000 a year for everything. Um, and this was a row of solar townhouses. So how do, how do you get people to talk and think about, and is solar an option in Philadelphia row houses? It definitely is an option. I think there needs to be more renewable energy legislation, uh, specifically around community solar in the state and the city to allow more uh, rural homes to be equipped with ground source solar, uh, rooftop solar, and, and even building microgrids to enhance the uh, ability to have more community solar and ownership uh, within community. Because- Is it happening anywhere in, in any neighborhoods and communities that you're aware of? It's happening in states in Jersey and, and, and tons of other states in Pennsylvania, there's not legislation yet for community solar, which we are advocating and pushing for. Um, you know, lobbyists probably don't want that, but the community does. We want even uh, to look at combined systems of solar and geothermal energy, uh, water and wind uh, as a combined system of microgrids to electrify our public utility systems and to get up to date um, with our energy systems uh, to lower costs for consumers, to bring labor in the, the fold for living wage green jobs and to save the planet to sustain life on earth. So solar has a bit job to do, but there it needs to take public sector support and private sector support. And just one story, uh, attending the Solar Congress in uh, Pennsylvania two years ago, this issue of really thread communities across the state, uh, red and blue. I know there was farmers uh, looking to install uh, far, uh, solar on their farms as an additional uh, source of revenue to put uh, food on the table, um, but they also uh, grow and produce and distribute food. But the same things in our uh, uh, local uh, urban areas in, in terms of the rural need to have solar, but the only difference is that we're placing them on churches, uh, large commercial buildings and residential homes uh, to, to energize our homes and to bring additional revenues into the household. So if we're making a checklist, which could get very long of uh, key Pennsylvania issues, um, support for, I mean, what is needed? If I wanted to go put a solar you know, panel on my house, could I do that? Or do I need special legislation out of the state of Pennsylvania to do that? Or is the legislation geared toward the whole notion of production of energy? Uh, well, there right now is not 
legal to have community solar because it's on the state level, not. I see. So that's a production, being able to produce alternative energy. You can't do it legally in Pennsylvania. You, from a logistical standpoint, yes, you can. They they have the capability to do it. We need the will and the legislation to do it. Uh, we definitely have the capability to to install uh, solar power around the city and state. There, there is innovation in battery life um, and, and, and innovation in technology in regards to you know, battery life, but they have the technology now to do it. And so again, the private sector has it, but the public sector has to catch up and meet the private sector in the middle to make it affordable for everybody to have access to renewable energy. And, uh, and let me just make a distinction between alternative energy and renewable energy, and that we are talking about renewable energy being clean energy. Okay. Clean and but, green. So is there, and uh, Steve or other Russell, anybody could chime in, is there legislation pending anywhere that has any hope? That well, I mean, I don't know about any hope, but um, I just... <laughs> I just dropped it That's in the community solar. I mean, community is an uphill. The Pennsylvania state legislature is a nasty organization. It is, there is no other way to say it. It is a ugly, disgusting organization. Um, and right now, I mean, community solar would just do so much. Cause I mean, a lot of environmentalists don't like this when I say this, but um, you know, the home solar panel model leave something to be desired because you know as a resident i don't really want to manage like i would much rather let a professional do that um and that's what community solar is it's you know a professional gets to build the biggest solar farm that they can and then i buy into that like a stock or something like that um so then as a home as a resident you know i don't have to deal with the stuff on my roof but i still get to buy into really large-scale solar um, and there really is, and I'll stop talking after this, but there is a, you know, there's a tech issue that needs to be broached with residential solar in the idea of, you know, if I'm on my block and everybody has independent solar panels, that's a lot of resources. That's a lot of wiring. It's like, it would be, it would be better if we could all wire them together, which would be what community solar is. Steve? Yeah, I just want to add to that, that, um, Community solar also helps people who are renters, who are um, apartment dwellers, um, and that's important. It allows them to um, um, buy into and 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 get the get the benefits of of solar. Um, there has been uh, some recent court actions that suggest that the courts are. Um, are not aligned with the legislature, um, but um, the legislature, as Russell said, as Russell Serbo said, um, is is clearly um, not in favor of it, um, and the so utilities why? have not really pushed it. Is that because of of utility lobbying? I mean, why is the legislature? So, the I mean, other than the fact that they may say it's fake power, I don't know, but um, why are I, they so opposed? Well, I think that it it is against the interests of the Gas Association. 
Okay. So now I mean, there's some horrendous the nitty-gritty here. In the huh? state legislature right now, I mean, there, there are bills to defund DEP. There are bills to remove um, environmental permitting and to remove public comment. Like, you know, the Pennsylvania state legislature is trying to dismantle this democracy in Pennsylvania. It's not just about community solar. I mean, they're, it's not just about community solar. Okay, so it's about environmental issues across, across the line. Um, I would say beyond environmental, I mean, they're just really nasty conservatives, like every, like there's, you know. So good example. Are there, are there good examples of communities that are effectively involved in impacting environmental justice issues? Is Philadelphia one of those communities? And, and if, if we are one of those communities, where is it happening? Is it happening because some of the big real estate folks decided to turn their lights off so that birds that were migrating um, wouldn't die by the thousands? Or is it happening because um, of the work that's going on around the, uh, in Nicetown or in Chester? I mean, where, where, where are the things that are happening really seem to be making an impact? Because we clearly haven't changed the legislature, that's for sure. But is, is there a place to start with that? What, Steve, what do you think? Is there a place that it's happening in a, in a good way? So I, I won't say a good way, but a promising way. Um, the Office of Sustainability um, that is in the mayor's office, um, is leading, for example, a uh, PGW diversification study. Um, I think we could be more aggressive in it. I think we could be more aggressive in its goals, but it's in the right direction. PGW, which is municipally owned, on the other hand, um, is using ratepayer um, revenue um, to support the gas association which is lobbying against those efforts. Um, for example, even in when, building- when you, say, when you say rate payer revenue, you mean what I pay PGW for gas, they are using some of those profits to lobby against solar power or to support the gas industry. Well, not just solar power, um, even uh, building codes that would make buildings um, more efficient um, and more um, capable of being you know, fully electrified. Uh, they are seriously lobbying against that. In a recent um, um, code association meeting, the cities and, and our office of sustainability, for example, voted for codes that, were, that did encourage efficiency. And after they lost, and, 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 and the city, the cities won that vote. After that vote was taken, the Gas Association, which is supported by uh, PGW and PGW members attended this as well and voted against those building code updates. Um, they approached the code association and the code association actually overruled the, the vote of, okay. of the cities, of its members. So 
on one hand, you've got an office of sustainability um, going in one direction and uh, a municipally owned gas company that kind of doesn't follow the policy. Is that what's going on here? That's what appears to be happening. Yeah. Um, and it needs to be investigated more fully. I'm sorry, Russell. Oh, no, I was just the city of Philadelphia had to fight to there used to be there's a lot of preemption law. The state of Pennsylvania mm -hmm. is always trying to stop Philly and other municipalities from, you know, doing the right thing. Um, so for a long time, there was a law. So, like, so, for example, Philly can't have stricter gun laws than the state of Pennsylvania, which is, you know, a huge problem. And it's led by the gun industry in Pennsylvania. Same thing with building codes. The city of Philadelphia had to fight tooth and nail to be able to update their own building codes outside of the state uh, body, which is pretty much run by the construction industry. Um, Pennsylvania skipped the 2012 international building codes, adopted the 2015 codes in 2018, and the city of Philadelphia uh, successfully petitioned the state to allow them to adopt the 2018 codes, but it was a, a nasty battle. So this kind of is an interesting jumping off point because um, we're, we're talking about a group of young people who are connecting with land at Bartram's Garden and the Sankofa Garden where they're learning about the importance of taking care of the land and the, the spiritual connection of that. Um, and then we began to think about what, what is going on today? What is it that redefines or defines who we are and what we're doing? Because it sounds like to me, when you start to talk about things like gun laws and building codes, and um, those were a lot of things that didn't used to be a part of an environmental discussion or an environmental justice discussion. So does that mean that the, the discussion is now so much broader? It's like when President Biden started to talk about infrastructure. So Russell, Russell Hicks, I see you shaking your head. Does that mean we're talking about a much larger conversation here? Yes, it's, um, it's all related. It's, all, it's so many intersections in regards to environmental racism, environmental uh, injustice, um, you know, economic equality, it's all tied in. So when you talk about the infrastructure bill on the federal level, it has a lot to do with, you know, uh, funding for uh, parts of a Green New Deal. Uh, it's just, you know, um, making sure again that we are progressively uh, advocating in the middle to bring uh, our two parties together to do something for the American people to prevent instances like Texas happening again. And so we have the uh, PJM, uh, Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland, who controls and distributes our energy up here. And that can easily happen here in either of those states. Uh, so mm -hmm. to prevent that on the federal level, there, yes, there's the infrastructure bill coming up that we need to advocate and make sure that there are equity measures in there, the environmental measures and economic justice measures in the infrastructure bill, because it's all related to housing, uh, food, access to land and, and building uh, local food systems uh, with community and energy. 
in order to 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 really fuel all that. Um, but we just want to advocate for that to be as clean and green as possible through renewable energy legislation. Do you think do you think you're seeing some bright lights out there working on this issue that could have an impact, Russell? Well, yeah, right now I know in the nice town area, there's a federal lawsuit with the uh, EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, and, and that's going to be a local slash national issue that uh, Germantown and nice town has been fighting for in coalition with power uh, and, and looking for, you know, some results there. So monumental precedence in terms of legislation but it's, it's fighting for environmental justice in local neighborhoods, particularly around opening of this uh, SEPTA power plant, uh, which again, affects the, the air quality the, and, the, and the quality of um, life force residents. Also, again, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, communities don't get cut out of the, the, the Green right. New Deal, just like they did the New Deal. Uh, mm -hmm. um, right. You know, so, you know, that's kind of so where we are now. What, what though this says to me is that whether you're looking at things from a perspective of a connection through farming and producing a food or producing a solar power that it really comes down to the fact that every phase of our life is one that's connected to some issue of, of environmental justice. I mean, Black Lives Matter is an environmental justice. Um, you know, rubric, I mean, it's there and that's what it's really about. The right to be able to exist in a safe neighborhood uh, as opposed to a neighborhood where you are policed instead of living in a safe neighborhood, um, that's an environmental issue. And that's a very big change from what I think any of us who were around in 1970 saw because we talked about plastic bags and and dumping and uh, what did we do with solid waste and solar power, but no one made that connection to the broader issue of how is it that we live our lives and take care of each other as well as the land around us. And I just, I think it's important um, that we begin to use a language that allows us to tie this stuff together. Um, Shailene, you're very new to this issue. I mean, and, and was your introduction to environment the garden? Is that the first time you heard that word? Um, well, yeah, actually, I wasn't really like into learning or at first I wasn't even interested in understanding about like the land and everything until my sister like she got me into it because she used to work there and then from there she was telling me about it and then once I got to work at the farm I learned more about it and yeah it was just trying to improve my knowledge on the whole subject and also trying to figure out what I can do to like at least leave something ooh, you know to be able to yeah leave behind when I'm not even old enough you know to be here anymore so yeah well thank you thank you for taking that on thank you for all of us for taking it on I have to I have to pause for a minute because um in the New York Times today there was there was one of those another vi environmental moments that I wanted to share 
And that is from our Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, who spoke yesterday at the international finance um, event about the US economy. And she called climate change, and this is a quote, an existential risk to our future economy and way of life. So I guess that's a change, even though in 1970, in December of 1970, does anyone remember what happened? Richard Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency. That all happened very rapidly in 1970, which as we sit here in the state of Pennsylvania thinking that nothing will ever change, if there is a will and if there is leadership, I mean, EPA was created within months. Um, not that it's always been, been an easy road or that EPA has not had to, you know, move back and forth between a lot of influences, but has EPA been a good thing? Is it an important thing? Yeah, and Maria, I would even say, um, and this is all that Steve, I just wanted to get this out really fast. Like, you know, I've been complaining a lot about the state of Pennsylvania. Um, that's why Philadelphia has its own environmental agency, Air Management Services. Um, during that period in late 60s, uh, before, you know, before the EPA was created, you know, hundreds of people were dying during pollution days in New York City, Philadelphia. Um, and the state of Pennsylvania actually told the city of Philadelphia, you know, if you don't create your own air quality agency, we're going to create one for you and you're not going to like that very much. Um, so that was how we got Philadelphia's air management services. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Steve, you wanted to add? Just, just for your point, Mary, um, the, for many decades, for, for many years after the EPA was formed, the environment was a bipartisan issue. Um, oh. It was not highly polarized. Exxon um, did incredible work, research, at detailing the impact that, um, the uh, green, uh, that the greenhouse gases were having on the environment in the late 70s and early 80s, I believe. Um, they, they did outstanding scientific work. Um, they understood what was happening. And then their management changed. Um, they, the, the new management saw it as a threat. They canceled the research. They started to create, um, or at least as I understand it. Um, so I, I'll, I'll say they allegedly started to create um, confusion about what was happening. And by 2000, it was no longer a bipartisan issue. Um, it was polarized. And, um, and we see what, what's happened. Was fossil fuel the source of all our ills right now? Is that the biggest source? Um, I think we need to distinguish between fossil fuels and the fossil fuel lobby. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the fossil fuels just stay in the ground. They don't have any opinions about anything. It's, it's the taking them out that is the problem and our, and our need to sell them. Yes, right? an economy based on extraction, that's correct. 
So during the pandemic, everybody said, oh, you know, the call for oil went down. The call for fossil fuel went down because people weren't commuting or weren't driving or whatever. Um, and we even begin to hear noise that, you know, Arab countries and the big oil producers were looking at how do we get rid of our dependency on oil production? Um, is that telling us something that, uh, is there a change there or is it just now back to the same old, same old? Prices have gone up, that's for sure. I have a weird perspective because like, you know, there, there's this very like, patriotic, conservative American, like fossil fuel independence sort of idea that is right. sweeping the nation. Um, and it's like, it's so weird to me because everybody talks about, you know, energy independence, but then all these same companies want to then export fossil fuels. Like, you know, if you're, you're not as, whether you're buying or selling it to a different person, like it's not, you're not being independent. Um, so I always thought that was crazy. Like all of these uh, conservatives that are talking about, you know, energy independence are the same people that want to export everything. It's like, that's not energy independence. Yeah. And so we're shipping oil through Center City, Philadelphia. Is that correct? Is it going right through Fittler Square? I mean, that's what I keep hearing that there's this impending disaster of uh, oil being shipped right through the middle of Center City, and it's only a matter of time. There was actually I mean, a fire it, it, on CSX rail tracks in North Philly over the weekend. There was a brush fire because that same railroad company doesn't maintain their uh, their tracks. I think it was like 12th and Venango. Right. So is that the is that the same tracks that go through Center City that to get to South Philly and they're trucking oil or, or bringing oil along those train lines. So no one, no one thinks that's a big issue or one that we should be scared of. Oh, I and think we all about. think it's a big issue. Yeah, we should be because that no transportation one. brings pollution. That transportation industry bringing pollution through our city, not let alone the pipes, uh, you know, the infrastructure around pipes and then uh, to Russia's point, the sweeping the, the state in terms of, you know, alternative uh, energy and fracking and natural gas is still being promoted. And could there be a, a, a spillage? Could there be an oil spill from, I guess, if there were a train accident? There have been. I mean, there, it's the craziest thing. You know, people don't realize that the, you know, the Heinz Refuge is supposed to be this beautiful place. I go there all the time. You know, that's a toxic waste site the Heinz Refuge right. in Southwest Philly. And it had been like that for so long and had been known that. And then Sunoco had a pipeline spill there in 2009 and they didn't even have to do anything because it was already declared a toxic waste site. They just like, you know, add them to the list. We already know there's 50 years of dumping here. Yeah, there've been all kinds of spills and incidents. Uh, I mean, the refinery explosion, you know, poured, um, I don't want to get the chemical wrong, um hydrofluoric acid uh okay good i'm glad i got that so okay um we were very lucky in that explosion 
it could have been it, it was massive enough that 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 those chemicals shot up far into the atmosphere. Um, if it had been lower, it could have um, um, really affected the city. So, if you want to talk about what where do people weigh in on this, you know, where do the is it is it that we shouldn't use plastic bags and put styrofoam in the recycling uh, bins? Or is it about being in the street? Uh, is it about um, being vocal, being noisy? Is it about reelecting people or electing people that will in fact make a commitment to um, making sure that, there, that there's an opportunity for uh, addressing some of these issues. I mean, where, where does all this fall in the wide spectrum? I mean, power, power is, is based on how many, a hundred and something um, communities of faith across Southeastern Pennsylvania. Yeah, so about close, closing in on 150. Mm -hmm. So you have these communities of faith who have come together and um, what's the advocacy there? I mean, what are people doing? Are they, are they writing letters? Are they um, educating themselves? Are that you, all of the above? I mean, where does power see itself powering, moving? Well, uh, I think, you know, uh, power is, is constantly moving in the direction of renewable energy legislation, all of the above that you just named are actions that we employ. We encourage people to get involved on a monthly and biweekly basis. We have climate justice and jobs, meetings for organizers, activists, uh, stakeholders, anybody is welcome to learn, to strategize on how we push the envelope towards renewable energy as fast as possible to save the planet. I think um, a mindset and some core values across the board, uh, we should all kind of develop uh, a new narrative and, and learn more about how do we, uh, as a coalition, uh, push renewable energy in the private and public sector. But the private sector, getting them to see renewable energy and environmental justice through a lens of not only profit, which we know is a mathematical formula of revenue minus expenses equals profit, but more so it's about people and planet and having that triple bottom line lens around decision-making uh, as it pertains to business uh, decisions and models, but also uh, our core values on the public sector, just from the bottom up as a people and all people can subscribe to these values of health and safety uh, affordability of our utilities and our bills that we pay at home, uh, labor and getting labor involved in this discussion around renewable energy and what that looks like for their families and for all of our families and re renewable energy as those four core values. So our campaigns, whether it be a just transition for our public utility system with PGW, uh, our, our fight with PICO and some of the other private sector um, you know, funders of, of fossil fuels, we want them to reconsider um, you know, those core values. Uh, we want people to get involved to remind them, uh, particularly taxpayers, that our legislation works for us and that we need to um, vote and hold them account accountable between the ballots. 
and then for our private sector to come aboard and make better uh, business decisions based on a triple bottom line. You know, one of the things that we've observed over the past few years, and it's going on now with voting rights legislation or how to get rid of voting rights, the legislation in Georgia, Texas, Florida, mm -hmm. um, is that that legislation was written as model legislation funded by the Koch brothers and others, mm -hmm. uh, speaking of oil and fossil fuel. Um, and that is then taken down to a very, very local level with money in lobbyist pockets that say, introduce this legislation here. It's for you. Do it. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened over a number of years around redistricting, around voting rights. And is that a model that, that we should employ? Is that a model that should work for environmental justice activists that um, we begin to develop model legislation and then, you know, I don't know about the uh, being able to line people's pockets with the lobbyist dollars, but it's, it seems like to me you have to connect people to something that's real. Um, Maria, I think thankfully um, the New Jersey there has, has to provided. be why... A, uh, well, I was Go just going to say the the New Jersey environmental justice legislation, I think, is the national model. It hasn't been used yet, and <laughs> we're all kind of waiting for it to be used. Uh, in Do either we have direction. anybody who will look at it in terms of introducing an, an introduction in the state of Pennsylvania? No, no. Okay. But but we do have legislators who are allies to this um, that are working. Um, they're in the minority in the legislation, in the legislature rather, but they are working toward um, the same goals that, that we are. And uh, we are, um, so power for example, um, is part of uh, various alliances, um, climate tables that, are, that do respond to legislation and are trying to shape legislation or executive actions by the governor, uh, such okay. as Reggie. Right. Um, I also wanted to just briefly go back for a moment to your point about which is most important or, or the choices that we have. Um, someone chat, put into the chat everything. And I wanna emphasize that, that we get asked over and over again um, to prioritize. And you can't prioritize. And you can't prioritize. These things are interconnected. Um, and we have to push back when people ask us to prioritize, that that's that they're missing the point. Well, and the point that I think we tried to come to today that Russell, you talked about and Shailen, you talked about as well is the whole notion that whether it's voting rights or Black Lives Matter or gun legislation or building codes, it's all tied into an environmental justice discussion so no, you can't, you can't, it's pretty hard to prioritize. You pick and choose what you think you can push forward. Um, but it seems like to me that, that we also, and I, I heard this very loudly from, from Russell Hicks, we also have to somehow use some language that we all commonly connect to, um, that it makes a difference how we use 
certain words. Um, you know, you start to talk about, um, you know, energy, you have to be able to be clear that there are, that, that moving from one kind of energy use to another is not gonna make my life miserable. And how do we do that? How do we help people see that? Um, does it mean I'm gonna lose my job? What about, you know, all of that I think has to be connected with the discussion. Um, I know, Russell, you're working uh, on, a, on a big issue in Chester. Um, and I wondered if you had anything you wanted to share about um, environmental activism and what, it, what it's gonna take there to impact. Um, is, yeah, there a, is, a... is there a short and sweet to, to that discussion? Oh, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> and it's a really crazy. I mean, the thing um, that's happening. So, I mean, there's, a, you know, there's Chester is, you know, the world capital of environmental racism. Um, and Maria, I was actually going to bring it up earlier because you were mentioned kind of like the, you know, the history things we thought in 1970 or 1980 or 1990 change. Um, so the whole spark of that, you know, cluster of pollution sources in Chester, you know, Chester has maybe the country's biggest waste incinerator next to a paper mill, next to a sewage and industrial waste incinerator, next to a casino, next to a prison, next to Boeing, um, and next to, you know, a poor black community. Um, and right now they're trying to privatize one of the large public entities down there. And it's really confusing because it um, the situation is happening literally on three levels at the same time. It's the, the state DEP needs to transfer permits. The Public Utility Commission needs to approve the sale. And then the Delaware County Council also has to approve the sale. And none of these situations have been resolved yet. They're all independently up in the air. Um, so Clean Air Council is working on a DEP comment to oppose the privatization of the Delcora sewage waste incinerator um, and, and industrial waste And this waste is the one that's the biggest? That's the biggest in the country? No, that is the Covanta waste incinerator. Okay. Uh, their Different. air permit is up in September. So that's kind of a, um, that's kind of a okay. far off goal right. that I think a lot of people are organizing around, um, trying to get DEP to not renew that air pollution permit down there. Um, but yeah, and I think to all of the issues that we're talking about, there is this really crazy uh, push to privatize public utilities. Um, this company, Aqua Pennsylvania, and then this other company, Pennsylvania Water, and there's lots of companies that do it, but they're buying public water utilities and then operating them as corporations. Um, and it's just, you know, just so foolish. I, I can't think of one good reason why you would want a private company to treat your water for you. Um, so yeah, it's something the Clean Air Council is definitely working on. The comment is due May 4th. Um, but there's going to well, be a lot some of, of the public there. companies if you live in Flint Michigan didn't do such a hot job either. oh well Decor does um, a terrible job yeah yeah the yeah. that's the whole situation I mean the they can like like that's the reason why all these public utilities want to sell themselves is because they don't want to put the effort into properly running themselves so rather than you know stepping it up they're taking a step down 
Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's the crux of the whole situation is that the public utilities aren't doing great. So they're looking at privatization as like the solution, but I think it's only going to get worse. It just reminds me, I think we can add the U.S. Post Office to an environmental justice uh, discussion as well. Uh, speaking of selling of, of, public, of public utilities and public services, um, I'm, I'm going to see if we can go to some questions. Um, and I'm going to see if there are any questions that folks have or want to join or comments that they want to make in terms of, of discussion. Uh, we've kind of ranged around and um, we just really wanted to have a conversation that kind of introduces us to a lot of this and, and just the notion that economic and social justice issues are not separate from environmental issues and the interconnectedness of, of all of these issues, uh, whether it's, um, you know, a president who actually says the word systemic racism or um, understanding that um, some people have a much easier time getting a, getting a vaccination than others. And it, a lot of it depends on who you are and where you live um, to whether or not you can go to any kind of um, community solar power that would make your life cleaner and your neighborhood cleaner and whether or not your streets are really safe. So I would like to open it up. Um, I think I can unmute people, but I'm not sure. I may have to ask one of our Venture, Venture Cafe, Angela, if you can. Yeah, people uh, can go ahead and unmute themselves um, if you wanna ask a question or you can stick your hand up. Chat. Yeah, stick your oh, yeah, hand you up if you have a hand. question. Okay, Sean, you were here very early in this discussion, so welcome. Yeah. Happy Earth Day, everybody. Uh, thank you for the, uh, the wonderful discussion. Um, I did have a question. It sounds like there's a bit of red tape and gridlock currently in the Pennsylvania legislature as far as pushing environmental change. Where are some examples of some states where change is happening and there's less gridlock and red tape right now from an environmental perspective? And how do we, how can those rep, those best practices be replicated without overturning the legislature, um, if that's possible? I'm, I'm not sure if that's possible, <laughs> but Russell, Russell will have, take us to the cutting edge of that answer, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, you know, New Jersey, New York, Delaware, Maryland, they're all right there. Everybody, and like, honestly, you know, those states are sort of, uh, they use our electricity, you know. Um, Russell Hicks mentioned the PJM grid, you know, that started as Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland. Now it's like 13 states, but they still just call it the PJM grid. So, you know, we do all this nasty stuff in Pennsylvania, burning fossil fuels, fracking, you know, fracking is banned in New York state, but they still take our gas. You know, New Jersey takes our electricity, even though they don't generate as much, you know, uh, the state of Pennsylvania, exports more electricity than any other state in the country. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's easier for those states to have those policies because they're letting Pennsylvania do all their dirty work. Um, but yeah, one and of the that was Yeah, that was the basis for the comment that uh, the state of Pennsylvania breathes the pollution and then sends it all to other places. But 
we get the pollution of having created all that electricity or oil or gas really that gets not so much the oil but the gas right well new york state is the first it's of you know if you're looking for positive environmental things to log on to look at you know the new jersey ej legislation is solid they have a great uh renewable energy portfolio standard um and new york state became the first state in the country to regulate fracking waste as hazardous waste um a move that the federal EPA has neglected to do. Um, and it's a really big issue in Pennsylvania right now. And it's the reason why um, I oppose the sale of the of that sewage incinerator uh, owned by Delcora right now to this company, Aqua, because Aqua's parent company is also a natural gas company. Um, Aqua's parent company is Essential Utilities, which also owns people's natural gas. So um, you, we may be in a situation where a natural gas company owns our water if you live in Delaware County. And Sean, the other thing I would just say on the, on the front of the legislature is that really conscientious, careful organizing needs to be done at a very local, almost microcosm level so that you get to know who is your state legislature and this is what we want you to do. And you begin to, um, I mean, you, you begin to have citizen lobbyists that will take this legislation, will visit their offices, because guess what? They don't hear from people and voters very often. Uh, and it needs to go very, very local and very, very micro. Um, and there needs to be some organizing around that. I think power is doing some of that. Aren't you all visiting legislative offices? Yes. Um, yeah, that's what I thought. And and just to um, emphasize your point, um, the lobbyists who are being paid as full time, this is their full time job. They visit those whether it's through Zoom or in person or some other virtual mechanism. They visit those legislators every day. Um, it's hard for a volunteer base to do that. Uh, or mostly volunteer base. Um, so it's essential that everybody, as many people as, as, as we can get, are involved in campaigning, um, are involved in public hearings. The more people that show up, the more attention, well, the, po the politicians take note of those counts. And so the more people that show up, the more they realize that this matters to the people. Right. The, and and they need to need to hear more voices. I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just gonna say, uh, classic. If anybody's ever been to a zoning hearing, they literally count heads. How many people are for? How many people are are against? And you know, I'm not talking about. I'm talking about like you know, five people compared to two people. Like it's like you know the level of engagement that we see a lot. So yes. Shailen, maybe we'll power. get to. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to add their power in numbers. So get involved because uh, our legislators, they vote, but we have to vote for them and then stay on top of them between elections, again, at the local level, at zoning board meetings, at city council meetings, making our voices heard louder than the lobbyists because they have the money and they are active every day, but they are power in numbers, particularly from a diverse 
population of voters. There's so much apathy in our uh, local and state government that local officials feel disengaged to serve their constituency. And so the more people that gets involved with campaigns from the bottom up to vote, and also from the, um, you know, doing the research, just really digging into uh, following the money because uh, the public sector and private sector are married close together when we talk about the lobbyists. And so um, making sure that it's representative of stakeholders, which is all people and not just shareholders. Uh, I'm going to... Um... I'm going to respond to a comment in the chat room in a minute, but let me just ask Wendy Greenspan, did you have a question you wanted to raise? Well, I just wanted to um, amplify a little bit what has been talked about in the last couple of minutes about people getting involved and um, uh, in, in protesting and joining activist groups. I, there are so many people that I talk to that say, oh yes, I'm concerned about the environment. I you know, bring my canvas bag to the grocery store. I recycle, I drive a Prius. And then, you know, and, and it stops there. That is not enough. If everybody carrying a canvas bag to the grocery store is not gonna solve global warming. We have to get involved politically. And that, I mean, that's the most important thing it's not the canvas bags, it's getting involved, voting, joining activist organizations. And I guess, I guess uh, just a, a comment, um, David Beckett, I really appreciated the comment that, that you made that you hear, you're hearing more about politics from this discussion than about the innovation and the ecosystem and, and where does that go? And I guess, one of the questions that I ask is how do we make those connections? Because it's almost like one cannot happen without the other. Um, don't know if you wanted to make a comment about that, David, because it's like Russell Hicks is an entrepreneur who's trying to, uh, to look at innovative kind of ways that the ecosystem um, can be supported and changed. And, and I know Steve, you're working on a model with econom with an economist about um, how to deal with food sustainability. So I don't know, David, if you have something that you can share and thoughts about how do we make those connections? Excuse me, thank you. Um, I understand that I bring to any discussion either my collectedness or my scatteredness. The conversation, okay, um, yeah. the conversation that I'm hearing, I can have in multiple other forum, which I do not choose to be participating in. I chose to be in an, an innovation forum, and we're not having innovation discussions today. I'm hearing discussions of subjunctives, what I should be doing around being in touch with political legislators, about being involved in social action groups. I am specifically here because this is an innovation forum and that's not the topic that's being discussed today. Okay. I guess I think that part of what we have been talking about has been quite innovative and quite different, um, whether it's from the, you know, perspective of the Sankofa farm, but, you know, or, or a lot of other places, you know, 
the I whole would also chime in and say <laughs> that you know a, one another focus we have at Venture Cafe is talking about equality, and I feel like that is one of the issues that we're discussing today. So, I mean, I think this is all an important discussion to have. But but I would like to comment on on or at least respond to David um, about some of the innovations that are going on. Um, Boston, for example, is looking at a new program for ground source um, heat um, pumps that would be provided by the gas company. Um, this is consistent with their skill set, um, consistent with their overall model, um, but would not involve the delivery of gas to homes. It would involve the delivery of heat to home using electrification and the ground source heat pumps. It's a very innovative project that's going on. Um, we are following it and we are hoping that Philadelphia will at least do some sort of prototype around this. Um, secondly- and, and Steve, let me just interject. And in order for that project to happen in Boston, what needed to happen in the social or infrastructure around that innovation to make it to make it happen. It needed right. to be there, right? Right, so the people that organized it were working with a company called, um, I believe it's EarthSource, um, who developed the technology. Um, they worked with the union as well, the unions, um, so that there is a, a plan of action that um, actually addresses the core values that Russell, mentioned, Russell Hicks mentioned earlier around health and safety, renewability, affordability, and fair labor. So they went at it in a very strategic and innovative way, um, but there's other innovations going on as well. And I, I just wanna mention those, those as well. Um, um, New Jersey um, and Delaware are investing in deep sea wind turbines. These have to be manufactured on, uh, on a coastline or a river because the propellers are so large that you can't transport them over land. But they um, are very, um, it, it may be a very important clean method of producing energy um, for certainly for the East Coast. Um, again, uh, I think the New Jersey governor um, um, is committing $250 million into building that plant. Um, or the, the capacity um, to do that. So that's going to create new jobs in clean energy. Um, and lastly, coming back to the heat exchange, um, I think we need to think about new business models. We come over and over again through this conversation, we've been discussing some of the shortcomings of an extractive capitalist system. We need to yes. work with entrepreneurs to develop new models that flip the incentives so that the incentive is not extracting more from the earth, but providing services that people need that value people and value their communities. And I think that's possible. Um, and so one of the things that's being looked at for Philadelphia um, in the PGW diversification study is something called heat as a service. And I think that has potential to address that issue as well. I also think it's important to note and that if you look back historically at most of the 
innovations both in in drugs and healthcare and food and uh, even products, a lot of those came from uh, public policy and public dollar support. Um, and I think that if we can figure out how to move our public consciousness um, to support more of that, it does make a difference. And unfortunately, it does come with that word called political. Um, because it is quite political at this point um, as to how those dollars are spent. But I don't know if there's something else that uh, someone else would like to add or David, you would like to respond? You got to unmute though. <laughs> um, these forums are, ahead, about, are about taking ideas and manifesting them and making them real. What I'm hearing are topics that express potential, but specifically these venture capital forums are about supporting the community that transforms things from idea through implementation with accountability and providing a framework to, to make it happen. When we stay just at the level of concept, when it comes to it. this community that I'm part of, I would say that we're staying in the mess and not getting in the message. Um, the message is these venture capital forms coach people on um, how to articulate their message, how to get funding, how to deliver and be accountable, none of which is being discussed in today's area. And so I feel like this forum has been hijacked. Okay. Well, let I, me speak I to. I hear uh, what you're saying, Russell. Do you want to comment? And then Margarita, I see that Margarita, you have a question or comment. Yeah, just Russell? to respond to the role of venture capitalists. And again, we we try to um, frame on, you know, capitalism as a profit-driven business model in terms of the private sector and their responsibility and role. And what we're saying. Uh, the difference between a traditional entrepreneur and a social entrepreneur is the triple bottom line, which uh, considers in their mission and operations and business model, not only profit, but also the health of people uh, in terms of quality of life and then life on earth itself, because there's no money without an earth. So that's the bottom line. And in all private sector, people can understand that. If we're going to have a just transition to renewable energy in our public uh, utility sectors, there's tons of innovation and technology we can talk about. When we talk about the land and food, there's vertical farming. We talk about you know uh, hydroponics and, and growing food through water. We've already talked about some innovations in the solar sector using uh, solar power. And that's, again, battery life technology tons of uh, technology that can be invested in. There's a role for the social capitalists uh, who is just not all about profit. There's a role for the consumer. And, and also, uh, yes, we want to put this on the table, uh, uh, you know, getting back to a demand-based economy and, and having that drive the supply 
instead of the lobbyists and the, and the CEOs at the top of these corporations that are funding fossil fuels. So we can talk about technology. There's tons of innovation in science, but it should be followed and the data should be used to, to make uh, better quality of life on earth for all people. So we're almost at the end of our time and uh, somebody I thought Margarita was here had a question, did not have a question. So um, is there, is there a, is there a final is there a final moment that we want to come to of whether or not um, whether or not we can celebrate Earth Day or should we celebrate Earth Day but be sad that we still have to celebrate the notion of Earth Day? I'm not sure. Oh, I uh, think we can celebrate her. Uh, yeah. I sorry, I would say I do still feel like we definitely should, because even though we still have a lot of work to do, we still have made progress. Also, me as a young student, I did come to realize that there are also like a lot more younger students more invested into taking care of the earth or seeing a change in climate change and global warming and everything. So I do feel like there is possibly a better future for like the planet because a lot of people that like try to make their voices heard by like political views so that we can actually get what we need. And yes, I do feel like we are coming up, like it's a long journey, but I do feel like we'll eventually be able to have more progress in order to fix the problem and try to reverse at least some of the damage done. So, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna call it an afternoon there, and I I'm gonna remember that we take away from this the lesson one more time that we pause and say thank you um, to those who have been able to try to. Um, take care of the earth historically and those who will take care of the earth moving forward. So thank you very much. And I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of Earth Day. Thank you. Thank you, Marie. Thank you, Stephen Russell and Russell and Shylin. <laughs> this was awesome. I, I'm so glad that you came out today to do this. Yeah, and this great. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Thank everybody. You. Get outside I'm pretty sure this time last year I was trapped. I was stuck in my house and locked down. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so we're all we're all still a little locked down, but uh, you know, through the innovation of uh, of Zoom, here we are. So <laughs> have a wonderful day, everybody, and thank you. And take uh, care, everybody. Okay. And Angela, Bye. I don't know if you're planning. You know, feel free to send my email around or. Um, I don't know what the wrap up. Plan Absolutely, was, we'll I will try to put that into. Uh, you want to put it in the chat? We'll oh, uh, you know, I was going to do that, but I realized that you know, I I, I should have done it earlier. <laughs> now we obviously have uh, less people. Well, you know what we can do when I when I put this video up on YouTube, I'll put all your information in in the in the text. Yeah. Okay. That perfect. Way. Good. Okay. And I'll share that with you guys in about a week or so. Thank, Thank you. Okay. Thank you.